Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Andy. And we are here with Alex Vitale today. He is a sociology professor at Brooklyn College, a writer for The Appeal, The Nation, and Truth Out, and the author of a book we're going to be discussing today called The End of Policing, out now on Verso Books. Welcome, Alex. How are you doing? I'm excellent. Thanks so much for having me on. Today, we're going to talk about a subject very close to all of our hearts here at the Antifada, and that is the abolition of the carceral state. We just did an episode very recently with No New Jails, um, with a, a Nadja from No New Jails, who was great. And now we're doing another one on the end of policing. So if it seems like the Antifada is turning into a police abolition podcast, it is. And I'm not mad at it. And in New York right now, a lot of the action in the street, a lot of the movement is around questions of also imagining what a world would look like without the carceral state of prison and police. Do you want to describe your impressions of this this growing movement around decolonize this place and no new jails? Yeah, I don't think that it's, you know, that like new. It's It's been evolving and taking different forms and expressions. So for the last couple of years, it's really been focused on this no new jails front of trying to oppose the building of new local jails to replace Rikers. And that movement didn't really lend itself exactly to like angry street protests. Uh, so it was meeting with community groups and doing some lobbying and uh, and this kind of grassroots mobilization. But the proposal to, you know, add yet more police to the subway, right as we see a whole series of obvious police abuses, that did lend itself to kind of angry, disruptive street protests, which is in a way a return to the Mike Brown, Eric Garner area. And of course, there's a lot of the same people being mobilized here. So I think it's really it's the the same movement and it's been taking different forms over time. And I think that it's important that that street heat component not get left out of the mix. And so I think it's an exciting moment and a kind of consolidation of forces. And uh, to me, it's very exciting to see that this is a movement that has had legs because in my 30 years of doing this work, police protests have been very episodic and short-lived. You know, some horrible abuse happens. There's a set of, of very angry protests. Uh, some reforms get put forward. A few of them, you know, get agreed to. And then the movement kind of demobilizes and very little really changes. So uh, that to me has been one of the most exciting things about the last four or five years is the sustained activism around this issue. I think what's so potent about these last two protests, these FTP marches, one was uh, here in downtown Brooklyn and another one was in Harlem, and is it's a combination of two things that are making average New Yorkers very angry. First, over-policing, which of course predominantly affects young black and brown people, and that's something that affects pretty much everybody who doesn't just take an Uber everywhere, which is the decrease in quality and raising costs of public transit. And now they're trying, people think that already the 500 new cops are on the subway because we're seeing all these videos of police abuses on the subway. But that's a plan that they're still discussing doing. Oh, What's Jesus. happening now is just a slight increasement in policing in the subway. That's nothing compared to what's coming. Um, and I think actually these protests and you know other activity might be pushing the MTA into to moving back on it. But we're going to see that later this month. Oh, God. They're so bad. 
like, uh, sorry to state the obvious, but like every time you see a video of a churro lady getting harassed and humiliated or like a black kid having a million guns pulled on him in the subway while everyone's terrified, like... I know that the working class is divided along lines of race and nationality or whatever. Anyone with a heart would care and should care about those videos. I think they're very powerful and I'm glad that people are talking about it. Um, I also want to talk about these protests in terms of the worldwide movement against austerity and neoliberalism, because it seems to me that things are popping off all over the place for related reasons against a common enemy. And I know there were conscious efforts made in New York City to connect up these protests with other protests around the world. Um, The last March, people had umbrellas to connect them to the movement in Hong Kong. Um, There were lasers. uh, And those those have been appearing in protests all over the world. Um, And in addition to looking cool, they can also be used to, you know, disrupt police activity and then you can go home and play with your cat they're like really uh <laughs> multi-purpose uh multi-purpose tools so that's nice i mean the, if only the police would chase them the way cats do i know right that'd be so perfect you've never seen a police cat now have you it's impossible or a riot cat only police dogs exactly and riot dogs cats are anarchists um there were also some banners that connected up uh different movements like i believe we were carrying one. Am I not allowed to say that? Should I not say what banner we were carrying? We were carrying a banner. Uh, listeners can pour through the photos and try <laughs> to figure out which one it was. Yeah, try, try to figure out which shapes, which masked figures are <laughs> shaped like Jamie and Andy. Uh, but there were there were banners. There were banners with some slogans to connect uh, these protests to the ones in Chile, for example. Evasion Massiva was one of them. And... Uh, yeah, there were some flyers too. I mean, there was people spelled some stuff out in writing uh, in in a little more detail as well. And I'd love to see more of that. You know, the no new jails people on the no new jails question did a lot of great writing. Their their report about alternatives to relying on jails is is very powerful, and I encourage people to check it out. Yeah, um, and just to announce that again on on December twentieth, there's going to be the third FTP march. Connecting this uh, struggle against the police with a street movement and the, you know, the uh, abysmal com- uh, conditions on the MTA. So that'll be on Friday, December 20th, somewhere in Manhattan. Just watch Decolonize This Place's Twitter and Instagram for more details when they come up. Yeah, come on, come on out, fam. Um, one thing I wanted to note about the last protest, and maybe this should be something to know if you're planning on coming to the next one is things do seem to be escalating a little bit. Like, would, would you say that that's true, Andy? I don't know. I think the, the one in Harlem, although there were 60 arrests and they were kind of brutal, it just looked like how the end of Black Lives Matter looked in New York. Like, they were just really trying to make sure people aren't in the roads. Um, but I would say that the, like, everyone moving into the subway at the same time and, like, the vandalism of the subway is an escalation. But it's definitely not, it's not like a, you know, Hong Kong level escalation. No, I mean, we're probably not going to see that here. But, you know, maybe who knows? But the like, police definitely don't like it. And when something happens that they don't like, they can 
hope yeah. they act for sure. But like I, I remember the first march, the police were just kind of observing and seemed pretty chill. So that's kind of what I thought the second march was going to be like, too. I think that's because it was in Brooklyn. But that's just my theory. You think? Yeah. I think they weren't ready to. I mean, they, they were caught off guard by the size of the first one, which I was at. And I, it's clear to me that they made a strategic decision not to allow the second one to, quote, get out of hand from their perspective. Mm-hmm. And so they had a you know very large mobilization and a plan for making mass arrests when given the opportunity sort of legally to do so. Oh, yeah. As soon as we got to the square where everybody gathered, I saw the cops with those giant rings full of zip ties, those like little little handcuffs that they use when they... Uh, arrest a bunch of people and i was like oh this what's this gonna be but then i was still kind of like oh like i'm in marching mode right now i'm not in like crazy unpermitted street action mode i thought i was just gonna like march and yell stuff and carry a banner and then we turned the corner into that first intersection and the cops just rushed in and started tackling people on both sides of me and my fight or flight kicked in and I just took off running. And it was kind of like that at various points throughout the night. It was the same thing with Occupy, right? After the first couple of things, they got us feel for what was at stake here. And then the repression of marching in the street began, you know, with full force. Which kind of makes me think that these marches are an effective tactic, right? Because... If they weren't doing anything to challenge the power of the police state, I mean, wouldn't they just let us tire ourselves out, you know? Well, there's also this sort of cultural obsession that the police have with the free flow of traffic, maybe because most of them are drivers from New Jersey and, (laughs) and Long Island. But they really will die in a ditch to keep traffic going. And in fact inflict totally unnecessary injuries on people, attack people with horses and motor scooters for the sole purpose of keeping traffic moving. Uh, So there's like a a kind of institutional imperative to do that in general. But obviously, they hate these protests. They are directly threatened by them. And oh, I uh, thought FTP stood for um, (laughs) fond feelings for the police. Right. Free the police. (laughs) Yeah, the police definitely want to limit the disruption of the protests, but also like demonstrate their power and their control over like a chaotic situation. Like I think they, the higher ups do look at things like Ferguson or uh, like Occupy in Oakland or even things around the world and say, well, that's not going to happen in New York. We're going to make sure. But I, I, I feel like people being in the streets, they are a little bit more confident with controlling that. Whereas when people go into the subways, I think that really does concern them because that's not something they really understand how to control without being very directly violent, which is something also they don't want to have those kind of images of, which is why when they are making all those violent arrests in the street, they immediately crowd around that scene. So there's no images of protesters being beaten up. That's an imperative to them, too. They're, They're definitely watching what's going on. I mean, right before Occupy happened. The police department was obsessed by the London riots, and they were running tabletop exercises and doing planning in the fear that that kind of thing could happen here. Because they're playing ex- like riot D and D, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And so, I uh, right at the beginning of Occupy, you have the very top-ranking brass at the top of the police department coming down to Zuccotti Park, even when things were kind of calm. 
because they were afraid that this would be the beginning of some kind of similar movement here in the U.S. And so normally you never see these very high-ranking people at a, at a street protest. Mm. It seems like the stakes are being recognized on both sides of this. Yes. Yeah, so before we get into a little bit about uh, your work and um, some other recent events, I just want to announce that Commune Magazine is having their uh, winter issue release party uh, this Saturday, the 14th, at Verso Books. Everybody is welcome. Just show up. Hell yeah. Uh, Commune Magazine. The infamous Verso Books loft, where we all sleep in a big bed together <laughs> with all the other leftist podcasters and work on our mass line. I yeah. think the the... Facebook thing said starts at 8 p.m. and ends at 6 a.m. So obviously you are planning for people to <laughs> crash out. Yeah, I mean, the final six hours will be nap time. And also we have some merch left over from our live show. We have maybe, I don't know, 30 T-shirts left, some stickers and some posters. So if you want any of that stuff, you can just uh, Venmo me or PayPal me and contact me on Twitter at Space Prol or message us on Patreon, um, and I'll let you know the details for that. Hell yeah. You know, I got to say, it hasn't gotten old yet to see our merch in the wild. Every time I see a sticker somewhere that I didn't put there, I'm like very excited. Mm-hmm. I probably put it up, so... <laughs> Don't tell me that. So I feel like this is a good segue into talking about some recent comments made by William Barr, who is currently the attorney general of this great nation. America's top cop. Oh, my God. Um, Dubious distinction. So do you want to play the actual remarks? Andy, you have it as sound. And I'm very happy today when I'm at an airport and troops come through being coming back or being deployed. Uh, there's frequently the everything stops and they get a, a round of applause because people recognize that that's the right thing to do for these people who are serving us. Applaud them. But I think... Don't fund the VA, just applaud today, them. Today, American people have to focus on something else, which is the sacrifice and the service that is given by our law enforcement officers. And... They have to start showing more than they do the respect and support that law enforcement deserves. And if communities don't give that support and respect, they may find themselves without the police protection they need. So what what do you make of this? Because on its face, like the threat of a police slowdown is like, fine fucking do it great like we don't need you and in fact you're making things worse but it seems like there's something more sinister going yeah, on that's here that's not really what he's signaling here politically right i mean this is a pretty clear appeal to a kind of creeping fascism and authoritarianism that says that uh you know if you don't if you're not with us you're against us And, of course, there's no circumstance in which they would actually pull the police out of these places because the police serve their interests, not the community's interests in in broad terms. So while, uh, you know, on Twitter, I was like, this is, you know, a really dangerous development. People like, but don't you want to get the police out? And I'm (laughs) like, 
Ultimately, yes, but but just removing the police tomorrow is not what certainly what I'm talking about. It's not what a lot of people are talking about. Uh, we've got to put in place infrastructures, build the strength of communities to allow us to manage, you know, what are sometimes very real problems uh, without relying on people with guns from 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 the police department. Yeah. And it sounds like what he's threatening sort of tacitly is not for the cops to leave these populations alone that are currently protesting them. Right. Like it seems to me like this is something of a dog whistle for law enforcement to, if anything, to intensify its enforcement and its violent repression of the populace and maybe a broader swath of the populace as capitalist crises compound and pull more and more people into poverty and into what we would call surplus populations. You know, it's got this sort of fundamental contradiction that's driven about the driven by the confusion between the thin blue line ideology and the practical reality of policing. So on the one hand, he's appealing to this thin blue line discourse that says that, well, the police are what makes society possible by aggressively repressing, you know, 20 percent of the community to save the other 80 percent of the community. And so if they pull out, then these communities will implode. But at the same time, the ideology of policing is supposed to be that they're here to protect us, that they're government servants. So this idea that they're going to just pull out because they've been insulted is seems completely contradictory to the kind of liberal ideology that they put out. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing that popped out first to Sam when we were discussing this on the majority report. Like he was very disturbed by Barr's uh, equation of uh, cops with troops. Yes. And he said, you know, we all pay taxes. Everybody deserves equal protection. The purpose of the police is supposed to be to serve and protect the populace, you know, not to treat them like, uh, oh, like like insurgents in another country, which like, I mean, I submit that we shouldn't be shooting anyone with the violent arm of the state. But like there is a diff. there's supposed to be a difference between cops and troops. And, you know, I made the point that the police have been militarized for a while and um, used against Americans for the entire history of the police. But um, I didn't know as many details about it until I do now after reading your book. Um, and it turns out, like, we kind of talk about the militarization of the police like it's a recent phenomena sometimes, I think, in these conversations, because it has definitely escalated recently with advancements in technology and stuff. But... Um, I learned from your book that it's been like that the entire time and most a, a bunch of the police forces that we have now in various parts of the country were founded for like all the evilest reasons you can think of, like ethnically cleansing Mexicans from the Southwest, um, catching runaway slaves, um, using counterinsurgency tactics learned uh, occupying the Philippines against uh, striking workers in Pennsylvania, like the list goes on. I think it's important to to point out that the police and the military are not the same and that police militarization, while in some ways an overblown concept because it misunderstands the role of policing, is 
can get worse and can get better. Uh, and I want to just turn what you said earlier slightly on its head. Imagine the chairman of the Joint Chiefs saying publicly in a speech that he's angry with the way the troops are being treated and that if they don't start respecting the troops, we're just not going to follow orders anymore. Mm-hmm. We're just going to the, the military is just going to do its own thing. Eey. Right. That would immediately be understood as a major national constitutional crisis. Yeah. But somehow for the attorney general to say we're tired of being disrespected. And so we're just going to quit doing our jobs and not listen to the political leadership, et cetera, is just like, oh, yeah, whatever. But but to this bigger question, I, I had the uh, opportunity to speak in St. Louis uh, recently to a group that's trying to get rid of the SWAT team there. Uh, and one of the things I said to them is that we have to keep in mind that while police and military are not the same, they serve a very similar function, which is the use of violence to fulfill a fundamental state purpose that is generally tied to managing regimes of exploitation, one in the international sphere and one primarily in the domestic sphere. And policing emerges as an institution as a more legitimate mechanism for managing these domestic problems than relying on the military or the militia. So it's always been about trying to minimize the use of force, minimize its military character to garner more public trust and legitimacy. When we see an increase in police militarism, this should be a signal to us that there's a crisis in the state, that they feel the need to amp up that use of force, which is always undermining their legitimacy in certain sectors. So I think this is true in general of the whole turn towards authoritarianism that we see with the Trump administration. It's a sign of a pretty profound Mm -hmm. crisis. Yeah, I mean, that reminds me, too, of um, one of the ways that Matt Chrisman defines fascism is when these uh, counterinsurgency colonial tactics are brought home to the imperial core as a result of a capitalist crisis or some other kind of crisis, usually a capital a crisis of capitalism and, and used on a country's own citizens. Well, we see this uh, and I give praise to Stuart Schrader's new book, Badges Without Borders, that talks about the ways in which there's always been an, an exchange of ideas and personnel between U.S. colonial projects like the war in Vietnam and domestic policing. So, for instance, the first SWAT team in Los Angeles in the late 60s develops after the Watts riots, a crisis to the, the order, uh, but is informed and influenced by what's going on in South Vietnam. And personnel changes, you know, overlap, et cetera. So they're bringing these counterinsurgency tactics to bear when they feel there's a profound crisis. And then when there's not a crisis, policing tries to be more friendly and community oriented and try to regain that legitimacy. But when push comes to shove, literally, right, the police will always use however much force is needed to overcome whatever opposition it faces. It's also interesting, Barr made these comments around the same time that uh, Trump aggressively pardoned and uh, undemoted those those troops who committed atrocities in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, I believe. 
they're kind of throwing red meat to this like Punisher logo. Sometimes we need to go rogue to do what's right. Right, and you saw that discourse from Giuliani, and and you saw it from uh, from the the prior Attorney General. You know that they're 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 that who literally said sometimes the police, you know, we got to take the gloves off. Mm-hmm. And so which then caused some law enforcement leaders to get all touchy feely and say, no, no, we got to respect the rule of law and stuff. Well, you'll hear this kind of reformist discourse about following the rule of law until there's, you know, active resistance to their program. And then they will bring out the riot equipment and the SWAT teams and the Bearcats and whatever else they feel they need to. Yeah, I mean, this is probably a testament to how sheltered a life I've led, but I really hadn't seen the cops brutalize people up close until the protest the other day. Mm. Like they were violently tackling people in the streets and it was, I mean, call me a snowflake, but it was really, it was really horrible. And that is a thing that happens every day to people mostly black and brown people little in this tip country. if you uh if you do ever get tackled like that and they're uh handcuffing you ball up your fists it, it increases like slightly the size of your wrist so when they put the handcuffs on it they can't put it on that tight as because t- they usually mm. put it on so tight to cut off circulation and people you know, those can get plastic cuffs are a lot worse than the metal ones act ironically but if you sort of ball your fist tight while they're doing it like don't resist in any other way because you're not you're probably not going to get out of that situation um yeah and that way the the cuffs will be a little bit looser on you. That's very servicey. Thank you Andy for the hot tip. You know metal cuffs have a fixed shape so they don't have to be so tight to prevent them from coming off, but mm. those flex cuffs because the shape is flexible, they feel the need mm. to do them very tightly. And so they can actually be damaging and, and quite painful if left on for an extended period oh, yeah. of time. And sometimes people have them on for a, a day or more. Well, it's important to complain uh, that that they are too tight, and sometimes you can get relief in that situation. You know, I really thought that I was getting the cuffs this time because I'm just not fast. <laughs> like I've already told all of my friends that they can leave me behind when the shit hits the fan. You know, I'll just be at Alphaville or something trying heroin for the first time. But like, <laughs> adrenaline is a hell of a drug, folks. So if you don't think that you are speedy enough to participate in one of these things if you don't think you're brave enough i mean look at me i'm a total fucking snowflake and i did it so maybe you can too and you're in the street like i i think if if you're at that march and you stayed on the sidewalk like away from the police you would have been okay oh yeah for sure i know that may not always be the case of course uh so like we said this is kind of the return of some of the the street energy of uh, black lives matter which also known as the movement for black lives um I guess that's kind of the less institutional way to refer to it. Since those street protests were more or less broken up by police or lost their energy in other ways, that energy kind of went in two directions. One was more reformist, uh, more towards the the Democratic Party, uh, towards community policing and that sort of thing. And the other um, calls itself abolitionist or into decolonization or moving into different left anti-capitalist segments. How would you uh, describe the politics of this more radical wing that's often referred to as abolitionist? Well, I think it's very exciting that we have a movement that understands more concretely and critically the, the fundamental nature of policing and prisons and society, and that is not pulled into 
this sort of false promise of police reform. So in this in this latest iteration, you know, no one in that movement is calling for better training for the transit police or little rules about, you know, who they can arrest when and how much force they can use, uh, et cetera, that they understand that fundamentally that increase in policing is about a kind of misdirection so that instead of actually putting the subway on a firm financial footing, instead of actually providing housing for people, instead of doing uh, what um, Kansas City just did, which has made its entire transit system free, that they're going to use police to enforce the fare rules, drive undesirables in quotes out of the subway and just amp up policing. And this is the standard austerity narrative, right? Replace adequate social services with intensive invasive policing and mass incarceration. So this movement is abolitionist in the sense that it has that analysis, that it is not looking to make the police friendlier, more efficient, more law-abiding, less biased, but it's trying to replace them with things we actually need, like a properly functioning mass transit system and actual housing for people who need it so they don't have to live in the subway. Yeah, I think that kind of speaks to another question that we have in our outline, which is why the police have become such a central target in these protests against neoliberalism and against austerity and against over-policing, given that they're only the front lines of the carceral state and the capitalist system in general. Like, I think you just said it very well, like they manage the effects of austerity when the populace is being squeezed from both sides. It is a really deep, important question, I think, ultimately, because I think for the three of us sitting here, uh, we would be very happy to see an explosive increase in labor militancy and real grassroots organizing on that front, community labor struggles that try to bridge the gaps across the working class, bridges of, of race and gender and geography that have, you know, kept us vulnerable. But the mainstream labor movement is not moving in that direction. While there has been some recent uptick in the number of strikes, the number of people in labor unions continues to decline. And we don't see a broad social unionism movement taking place. If that were happening, I would say let's focus in on that as our primary thing. And and I am active in, in my own union. Um, but if we want to build a cross-racial movement that with a radical analysis, what is the what's a driving force for that right now is the carceral state, resistance to the carceral state, because that is how austerity, the, the sharp end of austerity, is experienced primarily in communities of color. And the organizations with the best analysis, their program for reforming that sharp end of, of neoliberalism is building unions and workers bill of rights and a, a broad social wage and you know the kinds the kinds of things that the labor movement should be asking for but isn't and uh, a lot of your book explains in, in detail about how these the, the more reformist ideas um, basically just strengthen law enforcement in the end and and don't really solve uh, the fundamental problems. What is it do you th do you think 
that reformists get the most wrong? Or, or, or why do you think these are fundamentally wrong ideas? Yeah, well, part of it is that they think that the legal frameworks that the police have been, in theory, tasked with enforcing are fundamentally liberating for everyone. But this is a totally inaccurate reading of these legal frameworks. The law does not benefit everyone equally. There's a famous 19th century saying that the law and its majesty forbids both the rich and the poor from sleeping under bridges, begging in the streets and stealing bread. And of course, if we look at the war on drugs, I'm not interested in a friendlier, less biased, more efficient community-oriented war on drugs. The war on drugs is a legal framework that is fundamentally unjust, and we don't need to give narcotics units anti-bias training. We need to get rid of them. We need to change those legal frameworks, and that's where the procedural reformers fall short. They accept the basic legal frameworks and then try to get the police to do it more professionally to literally get people to trust the police more. And I'm here to tell you today, don't trust the police. That is not the solution to our problems. But what if Dead we could ass. use like a cool dare t-shirt and a mug and, uh, <laughs> and like a, there's a, I feel yes, like, uh, y- yes, this, this idea that we're going to f- fix the problems of race and class inequality in the United States by having police sit down with young people of color and share their feelings about mm-hmm. trauma. Yeah, I feel like I'm definitely going to get canceled someday for the photo of me singing at Governor John Rowland's uh, Drugs Don't Work press conference. I was 12. I did. I just wanted to sing a solo. Right. The music teacher picked me. There's a cop playing the guitar. It's hilarious. But uh, we've we've both broken a lot of promises since then. Me and Governor John Rowland. Um, but only he's been to jail. So that's fun. <laughs> You know, I don't think anyone would have known about that if you didn't just admit it. But well, I already I have posted it on Facebook because I think it's funny. So. I'm probably the only one who can say that from the youngest age, I did not buy the dare bullshit. I don't know. My my dad just told me something, and I was just like, "Yeah, I don't trust these cops in the classroom and what they're telling us about drugs." Well, you're just better than me, I guess. I mean, I didn't. I was very innocent. I didn't know anything about drugs, so they're like. Oh, yeah, there's a thing called drugs, and they're very bad, and you should never do them, and they'll kill you. And I was like, oh, yeah, drugs are terrible. And then I got the chance to actually do drugs, and I was like, well, of course I want to try them if they're, you know, they're around. I I ran into someone uh, raising money for D.A.R.E., like a parent, not even a cop, outside of a grocery store somewhere. And I told him, like, hey, you know, I went through the D.A.R.E. program, um, like just like everybody else in my school. My school didn't have like a lower amount of people using drugs than anywhere else. Uh, this these programs are just like statistically proven not to work. It's just a it's just a police PR tool, and it doesn't actually help anyone except for the police, if that. And you shouldn't raise money for them. Even the appeal for parents is not really about drugs. It's about the idea of legitimating the authority of police in the minds of young people as a way to keep a lid on our ids. You know, they really think the, the, the thin blue line ideology is based on this idea that if we don't micromanage people's desires, especially poor and non-white people, that chaos will reign. It, it's ultimately uh, racist and a deep misunderstanding of human nature. And 
extremely dangerous. And this is why, like most school police initiatives, begin at the elementary school level, mm. not at high school. Yeah. This is the history of school policing because it's not about making schools safer. It's about teaching kids respect for authority. Mm-hmm. So back to the definition of what abolitionism actually means and is. I feel like there's a lot of confusion on the socialist left right now. Um both both around what it means and like which tactics are or aren't compatible with one another. So do you think it's possible for an organization or a movement to support both reform and abolition at the same time? I feel like um, the DSA especially usually has this like scattershot both and approach where we're just like throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. So um, for instance, the DSA shares some members with no new jails. um, And I'm sure if they haven't yet, they're going to pass some resolutions in favor of prison abolition. And everyone's going to be like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Of course, I support that. At the same time, um, other folks in the DSA are running candidates for DA's office, like um, Tiffany Caban or Chesa Boudin, who I think it's inherently reformist rather than abolitionist to work within the carceral system, even if the people running are good. So, like, what do you think about that? Are these approaches ever compatible or no? So just a few declarations. So I am a member of DSA and was a delegate to the National Convention in Atlanta this past summer. Thought Uh, you looked familiar. I I am friends with Tiffany and worked on her campaign. Uh, The uh, Chase's people, I've been in conversation with them. So I am connected to this sort of progressive prosecutor movement. There's this concept of non-reformist reforms, and uh, Critical Resistance has some really good materials. You can go to their website, and kind of they've even got a little flowchart thing that help help you think critically about this. It's important to understand that movements have to develop organically, which means sometimes you throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks, even things that aren't perfect, but that speak to where the communities that you're trying to organize within are at and where you want to try to get them. And of course, we've got to build political education and deepening analysis into all of our political organizing work. But to speak to the progressive prosecutor thing, I, I view it as a kind of important harm reduction strategy that it is possible to use that office to dial back the carceral state. But I set a very high bar for getting involved in that work. So I met with all the candidates in the Brooklyn DA's race and did not endorse any of them. And I was in the process of meeting with all the candidates in the Queen's race when I got to know Tiffany and felt that what she was articulating was on a completely different level, similar in the way that I think Krasner is really operating on a different level. And uh, many of the other progressive DAs I've met across the country, I don't think they are. Some are trying to figure it out, and I've put my two cents in with some of them about what that might look like. But it's not my main focus. And even with the progressive prosecutors, what I've tried to do, and Tiffany understood this very clearly, is – What can they do to support interventions in the community before the criminal justice system gets involved at all? 
So, for instance, Krasner is trying to use his political power to pressure the city to put more money into violence reduction initiatives in communities that have no connection to the criminal justice system so that these young people never end up in his office in the first place. And so that's the kind of stuff that I'm interested in. And here in New York, there are a number of folks in DSA, in Afro-Socialist, Racial Justice Working Group, uh, Socialist Feminists, who are in dialogue about trying to get people together to have a conversation about the different um, movement that uh, of activity that's going on right now, everything from sex work decriminalization to getting police out of the mental health business and see if we can't get DSA in New York City on a little bit more of a solid strategic footing where people are on the same page. So I'm, I'm excited about the prospect of that. Cool. That is, that's a more optimistic answer than I was expecting. So well, thank you. Let me ask a kind of a, let me try to deflate the optimism a little bit. <laughs> All right, go, go for it. Let, let's say uh, a socialist candidate like a Bernie Sanders were able to take the reins of federal power um, given what we saw uh, with the Obama administration's oversight of certain police departments, like uh, like Ferguson, for instance, or uh, Oakland, um, how much do you think um, state power can really do to rein in the police, given how autonomous they tend to be? So uh, more declarations. So I worked on the Sanders criminal justice uh document and some of my language is in there. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are a lot of things in it that I asked them to take out. Mm-hmm. So I was not completely thrilled with the, the the particulars in it, though the framing I thought was very good. Uh, but I'm not interested in putting my energy into, you know, the presidential race as a primary thing. I think that uh, what happens with the election is of uh, secondary importance in terms of these key issues. But keep in mind, I view you know, a rising labor movement as a criminal justice reform. I view health care for all as a criminal justice reform. So the extent to which a Sanders movement writ large can help us move in that direction, that's that's all good, even if they keep some money in the budget for implicit bias training, which I think is totally counterproductive. Um, so we need to keep those things in perspective and, and have a kind of holistic analysis It is definitely true that the particulars of policing are an overwhelmingly local issue. We've got close to 20,000 independent police departments in the United States who are generally accountable to local mayors, not even governors, much less at the federal level. The federal involvement historically has been mostly just about giving away money with very few strings attached, and I don't really see that changing dramatically, maybe Sanders would reduce the amount of money that would be given out. There's some of that language in his proposal. But this is going to involve a lot of local struggle, which in some ways is a good thing. We don't have to wait for everything to get fixed in Washington to make real transformative changes at the local level. Yeah, let's let's break that down a little bit because a lot of people think that things like body cameras or training against racial bias is going to help the cops to help the cops. It's going to make the cops kill fewer unarmed black people. Um, and you break it down very well in your book, why that's not true. And, and like, as an aside, um, like we were saying before, even if the cops aren't killing people, 
Um, they're still arresting them and feeding them into a system that is incredibly harmful to their lives and to their communities. But like, why why doesn't racial bias training work? Yeah, that's one of my uh, one of my favorites to talk about. Yeah, so implicit bias training, which is the primary form it takes, uh, and this is important. Why they add the implicit part in is based on this idea that you know we have unconscious unconscious racial biases, and that this must explain all these disproportionate killings of black people is the police were just unaware of their unintentional biases. And if we can just make them more conscious of them, that they'll hopefully, you know, shoot fewer unarmed black people. Well, this is problematic on so many levels. The research is no good. There's no connection between how people score on this test and their actual behavior. There's no research that shows that this training makes any difference in individual level behavior. We got a big problem with explicit racial bias in policing that is not accidental and unconscious, but also the racism is built into the mission we've given police. When we tell, when we make a decision as a society, our political leaders tell the police that they are the primary agency for solving the problems of poor non-white communities, that's going to make racial inequality worse in the United States. Because in Westchester County, when someone has a drug problem in a wealthy area, they don't get the police involved. They use medicalized drug treatment and other interventions. But in poor communities, you get the police, drug courts, prisons, etc. And this leads to worse outcomes and makes inequality worse. So implicit bias training is appealing to police leaders and political leaders because it allows them to say they're doing something about race in a way where no one is at fault, no one bears any conscious responsibility for what's happening, and could you just please shoot fewer black people in the future? And it's outrageous. And the people who are making millions of dollars selling this training, a lot of them academics at well-regarded institutions are selling people a false bill of goods that actually undermines our movements and allows the racism of policing to just chug right along. And uh, your book stresses uh, how the history of policing and its uh, its current state and its current problems are directly tied to an enforcement of the color line and white supremacy, you know, the history of the ideology of whiteness in general. And that's that's very important to you and your work in understanding police. Do you think that the structural racism of the current police state could automatically go away if we had some sort of less violent community-based methods of dealing with interpersonal harm? Oh, oh yeah. And this ties into something that we were talking about on the majority report as well that I wanted to uh, bring in, per- perhaps tangentially, which is we had a call from a libertarian socialist who, you know, favors uh, decentralized, localized government and things of that nature. And, you know, Sam being a big government sock dem was like, well, then what will what will we do when you have police forces in situations like Ferguson, where they're just like violating people's rights, being racist, et cetera? Um, I hadn't read your book yet, so I didn't know that federal interventions rarely work the way they are supposed to. But um, it was it was an interesting way of framing it because. I feel like a libertarian socialist horizon also involves abolishing the police state as we know it. But like some people think that 
like that's not necessarily going to make the racism go away. And in fact, if patrols or whatever we want to call it, whoever's keeping us safe is limited to small communities that they could still be incredibly racist. So that's something that I've been wondering about myself. So if we understand policing as a state tool to manage the consequences of regimes of exploitation, then this sets the framework for analyzing, you know, a future course. And it dissuades us from a simplistic analysis about just making those institutions, you know, friendlier and less biased. So historically, what we're talking about is, you know, the rise of racialized capitalism, which gets expressed as, you know, the exploitation of workers and the super exploitation of workers of color and indigenous people. So if we put community policing in place, that doesn't fix that in any way. It just maintains this idea of, well, we use police to solve the problems of the community, but police use guns and handcuffs. They don't actually make these communities better places. So what if we make more substantive reforms, like we we bring in health care for all and community-based anti-violence initiatives – Will that then reduce the level of racism and capitalist exploitation? Not by themselves, Mm -hmm. right? And this is always the limit of certain kind of abolitionist frameworks is that they appear to replace police with social workers, but not get at the regimes of exploitation. My view is that you can't wait for the revolution to come in some fully formed fashion to do something about these problems of public safety and justice. In fact, it's just the opposite. We're never going to get to the revolution, what, whatever that revolution is. I, I'm not clear on that, but whatever it is, we're never going to get there unless we put communities in motion in a positive anti-authoritarian direction. And crime turns people into authoritarians and disorder turns people into authoritarians. That's the the punchline of my previous book, City of Disorder. So we've got to have non-reformist reforms that can put people in motion that set in motion some of the contradictions of racial capitalism that show the limits of that system in willing to provide us very obvious things that we need. Why can't we have adequate health care? Why can't everyone have a place to live? So as long as we structure our demands around things that people should reasonably have, to the extent the state will give us those things, those are real victories for us. They build our movements. And to the extent they won't, it lays bare the contradictions of that system, and it demands that we develop a deeper analysis and that we try to figure out what some better future is going to look like and how to get there. Yeah, that kind of speaks to the next question I was going to ask you, which is um, like we we hear on the, you know, NYC ultra left. um, We don't usually talk about police and prison abolition in a vacuum, but as part of a broader program that also includes getting rid of wage labor, private property and, of course, the state itself. Um, So. I was going to ask you, but I feel like you've been speaking to this, if prison abolition is possible within our current framework or if it's more part of a horizon level program, because I feel like your work is convincing me a little bit more that it is 
more of an immediate thing than part of my part 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 of our um, pie in the sky utopian socialism, you know. So you mentioned prison abolition, and I want to draw a distinction between prison abolition and police fair, abolition. Fair enough. I think we could see significant moves towards prison abolition. The rise of the kind of conservative right embracing right on crime, it costs too much money. The rise of electronic monitoring and and algorithms of risk assessment and intensive surveillance and monitoring might mean a big reduction in brick-and-mortar prisons. We might get a lot of people out of cages, which is all good, but that might not have any effect at all on policing. That policing would just keep chugging right along, and in fact, policing might become an expanded force in people's lives as an alternative to putting them in bricks and mortars prisons. And this is a critique I have of the prison mass incarceration movement is too often their refusal to take policing seriously. They're focused only on prisons. So there was a big mass incarceration conference, the Mumi conference, just the other day, and they had like 100 panels and the word policing didn't appear once. And that is a real problem because policing is the primary way that people experience the carceral state. Because the vast majority of people who have negative interactions with the carceral state don't end up in a prison. They're stopped and frisked. They're harassed. They're brutalized. That doesn't necessarily involve prisons at all. So is it possible to get prison abolition in the current system? Possibly. Or at least major reductions. We we had major reductions under racial capitalism. You know, we only had 10% of the current prison population 40 years ago. 50 years ago. But police abolition demands much more radical transformations. And I don't think it's fully possible, but we can do a whole series of non-reformist reforms. We can get rid of the SWAT teams. We could end the war on drugs. We could get the cops out of the mental health and homeless outreach business. And that would make people's lives better. And I think it would help build our movements. I guess I want to ask a question about what we do with the actual police. I, I read um, Our Enemies in Blue that makes a very strong case that the NYPD is just historically this autonomous institution that just cannot be reined in by the public. Um, and that's probably true of a lot of different kinds of police departments. There is beginning to be this idea that things need to radically change. These institutions need to be taken out of the hands of the same people, the same people that help you are the same people who punish you and that kind of thing. Uh, but like as we were talking about with the William Barr comments, the police themselves has become uh, increasingly a more strident political force mm. and political voice. So do you think there's a way that these institutions, even if we don't call it reforms, uh, can they can they be sort of steered in a direction where they're not so malicious and so antisocial? And I guess to put that another way, uh, are all cops bastards? So uh, I'm glad you brought up our enemies in blue. I had a chance to do an event with, with Christian Williams, who, who wrote the book in October out in Oregon. And that he was uh, his book was a definite influence. He's referenced, you know, in my book and uh, – if people are really interested in this topic, they certainly should go look at his book. And the somewhat recent edition is, is really excellent. So I look at this as a strategic question about power. So police influence 
politics in a couple of different ways. They're not a unified field. Uh, I was involved in putting this conference together that was supposed to be a labor conference, and they're like, we should get some police chiefs to come. And I said, well, you know, the chiefs are the boss. They're not the rank and file, that in fact there's divisions between the rank and file and the boss. Interestingly, the boss is usually a reformer, Mm -hmm. and the rank and file is usually more reactionary. And we can see this through the statements of all these police unions and fraternal orders and whatnot. So my focus is twofold. One is to point out how foolish and unsupported by the evidence the reforms are. They don't work. They're not going to work, and they're actually counterproductive. And then for the thin blue line unions, we have to just take as much of their power away as we can, and that's a political project. And the way we do that, I think, is that we make their political endorsements a liability for politicians. Mm. And uh, in California, Sam Singenway and and others uh, have been documenting who which politicians are getting their money from the corrections unions, the police unions, the sheriff's unions. And what Sam and I and some others have been talking about is trying to add another layer to that and maybe try to do this here in New York, which is to then link each union to its public political statements. What is the ideology that comes with that endorsement? And it's often horribly racist and authoritarian. And we've got politicians here in Brooklyn where we're taping this in communities of color, celebrating their endorsements from the police unions. Mm. And that's a failure on our part, that we've not made that such a liability, mm. that the corrections unions and the police unions can can actually wield influence among supposedly progressive politicians. Why are police unions so inherently reactionary? Like, it seems like it's at least possible that a group of cops in any given area might be committed to some sort of at least liberal reforms, but we've never seen that happen ever. Is it just that like the general setup of a union is like most workers want to do as little work as possible and do as shitty a job as possible for the most money? Oh my God, I just made unions sound so bad. I think that's good. I think we all deserve that. And the, uh, like, like what, what is it? If that was what their unions but were like, doing, yeah, their I job, would have no problem. Yeah, right. right? If, we were, if they were about trying to get another 2% on their pension or something. But, of course, that's not the issue here. That's why I think it's important to include the political statements in our analysis of who they give money to. Because they're saying that they do want to be in charge of everything. That mm-hmm. every problem is a, pol- a problem for the police to solve through punitive, invasive intervention in our lives. And also anything they do wrong isn't their fault. And you should let them... There should be no accountability. Well, because what the, when they do something wrong, it's in the service of their authoritarian project. Now, if they if they if they do something bad off the job, or they do something that's corrupt, then there's more openness. Cops do get fired for corruption quite quite often. Actually, it's the on the job use of force that where anything goes, and that's because they believe that. You know, they're dealing with people who only understand the sharp end of the stick, the lash. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's uh, just qualitatively different. Like if you fuck something up in the Amazon warehouse, I don't think there should be accountability for that. 
But if you fuck something up and kill someone uh, on the job as a police officer, you you should be held accountable. I mean, if a forklift driver in the Amazon warehouse, you know, kills a fellow worker, we need to know why that happened. Is Are they being overworked? Are, is the malf- equipment malfunctioning because that's our fellow worker? But yeah, that isn't about ruining someone's life. And of course... While police do terrible things on the job and we want that to stop, throwing an occasional police officer in prison is not going to fix any of that. You know, everyone celebrated the imprisonment of that cop in Chicago who killed Laquan McDonald. But I guarantee I was in Chicago three weeks ago and no one is jumping up and down saying, oh, my God, the Chicago Police Department, it's a whole new day. (laughs) No, that's not what's happening. It had no effect on the way that everyday policing occurs there. So we've got to move our analysis beyond, one, that it's about individual officer discretionary decision making, and two, that we want to bring in the same mechanisms of deterrence that are driving mass incarceration to begin with to solve our own problems. Yeah. Yeah, it's always so bittersweet. I never know how to feel when a cop actually gets sentenced to prison for murdering someone. Because on the one hand, like, if we're going to have jails, we should put murderer cops in there. On the other hand, like, this is a method and this is a system that's never going to result in justice for the vast majority of people. The system puts those cops in prison to try to placate us. Yeah. If they want to do that, let them do that. But let's not use our political energy and capital focused on trying to make that happen. Let's stay focused on the things that are going to really make our lives better. That makes a lot of sense. And build our power. Hell yeah. So um, I also wanted to ask about, you know, we've been talking about what doesn't work to reduce uh, crime and violence and interpersonal harm. And you go through some alternative methods in your book that have been shown to work. So maybe tell us about some of them and um, how they work and what they are. So one of the most exciting areas is in dealing with some of the most serious crime, which is, you know, shootings, gun violence, uh, uh, homicides uh, among young people, so-called gangs, etc. So a lot of the work that I do... uh, on an everyday basis here in New York is with a a big coalition of groups that's trying to end gang policing, big gang conspiracy cases, the use of the gang database, um, enhanced surveillance of young people on their social media accounts, et cetera. And instead, we're arguing for, you know, more spending for youth services, improvements to schools, and the creation of community-based anti-violence initiatives relying on the so-called credible messenger model, which employs older folks from the community who have a history of street involvement, who are known to the young people in the community, because these are often where this is a problem. These are often highly socially networked communities. To work with young people who are street involved at risk of either victimization or involvement in violence to try to break that cycle of violence. Now, this is not going to solve poverty. It's not going to end racial inequality. But it has been shown to dramatically reduce the amount of violence. And I think that creates space to then do the other work that we need to do to build our movements. Because it's very hard, for instance, to organize young people as a radical political force when every three blocks they're shooting at each other. Let's dial back the violence, 
and put these folks in in motion politically. So um, on uh, uh, this next week, the Policing and Social Justice Project that I coordinate is releasing a report on gang policing, and you can see that at policinginjustice.org. Cool. Just ask the libertarian question right yeah. Okay. Uh, so just to close it out, um, you also, you, you do a lot of these shows and, uh, uh, you're, and it's good that you do because you're very convincing about these subjects. Um, and you'll also, it seems like you'll do any kind of show and you've even done a couple shows with right libertarians who historically, um, have, uh, you know, um, a similar disposition towards, uh, police encroachment, um, what is it like talking to a right libertarian audience, and what do you think the difference is between those folks and the the more left oriented police abolitionists? I would do more of those shows actually yeah if they if I got the invitations I have done some so on the one hand, they come with this we share a kind of anti authoritarianism a skepticism about the state's going to fix all our problems so that we're both illiberal in that sense mm. um but they typically lack any kind of racial justice analysis. Right. And they also, you know, they lack a real good class analysis. Mm-hmm. So they want to rely, for instance, on market mechanisms to fix the police. So they are in favor of things like having individualized liability insurance for police, which I think is a completely misguided idea because – uh, the the thinking is that if an individual officer has to pay premiums on an insurance policy to protect them from being sued for misconduct, that they'll be less likely to engage in misconduct for fear of either losing their insurance or having to pay higher premiums, right? This is the perfect oh neoliberal market-based mechanism. But, of course, that was sort of the way things were initially, and then the state stepped in and immunized them. And that's going to be what would happen again because the state wants them to do these things. So why wouldn't it immunize them? It just doesn't really get to the the issue at all. Uh, So we can talk about, you know, disempowering the police, getting rid of the drug war, legalizing sex work, getting rid of SWAT teams. But that after that, it starts to get pretty uh, contentious. It's because they just have a totally different vision of how the what the world is and how it should be. Yeah, and just the nature of power, yeah, relations in our society. And their problems with the police tend to be very personal and right like it's, it's right about, they're like, about social liberties they want right. to be able to to do to their bodies whatever they want to do to them without the state telling them what to do which is you know this which then melds nicely with their no regulation on corporate greed and corporate uh, you know pollution of the environment and that yeah. sort of stuff so it's there's this quick moment of intersection and then a very mm-hmm. quick divergence yeah. You should definitely talk about that if you come on the Majority Report. Um, right-wing libertarians are Sam's favorite punching bag, as they should be. Um, one called liberals last week are and, mine, but yeah. <laughs> one called, well, they're a little bit more fun. Uh, one called last week and was talking about how uh, poli- they'll just be like, all police will just be private police. So, uh, you know, if, if, if somebody comes to your house and uh, says, this is my house now, then you call the private police force and they'll just... De- de- so that's what we house. had. That's what we had before. <laughs> See, before the invention of police 200 years ago, if someone stole something for you or injured you or injured someone in your household, you would go to court and you would 
pay a personal fee to the sheriff who would then go and compel that person to come to court and answer the charges against them, usually as part of a civil process. But that didn't work. In a complex capitalist society, that doesn't work. So then they created these state institutions to do that work instead. So it's a kind of romanticizing of some possibility that's been tried. And, and I mean, we could do more of that, but it would be better to set up community mediation processes to resolve disputes without the court system, to try to figure out ways to get people to live with each other with less conflict, et cetera. There are a lot of models for how to do this, community boards, et cetera, around the country. Mm. Okay, I thought of one more question to ask, and that's, in, in, in your years of doing this, have you ever met police officers who are sympathetic or even agree with uh, what you have to say? Oh, yeah, all the time. I mean, uh, the last talk I gave on Thursday night, a police officer came. He had an early edition of the book, asked me to sign it. Wow. They, they, it's quite frequent that yeah. an individual police officer will come, and they always say, for God's sakes, don't tell anyone I was here. <laughs> so I'm not even going to say what department he was from. Uh, and, uh, you know, here in New York, they'll come, and they I tried, well, what command are you? No, I'm not telling you anything, <laughs> but would you please sign my book? I really appreciate what you're trying to do. So, yeah, and— Outside the U.S., the book is very popular with police. I mean, I speak to police audiences outside the U.S. with some regularity, including sometimes hundreds of police executives at a time. Wow. So not all cops. Is that what you're saying? Right. I think, you know, outside the U.S., a lot of places, police are not armed. They're not trying to solve every problem under the sun. Are they still playing the same functional role, yes. So they have problems with like chapter two of the book and other things, but they don't want to fix the schools. They don't want to be in charge of mental health services. They don't believe in the war on drugs. They think that they can just focus on, you know, a small number of very serious problems where a coercive force is needed. So they're, they view the book as a kind of um, cautionary tale, if you will. The United States is just a cautionary tale. That's right. That's right. We don't want to be doing this, so don't try to make us look at Alex's book and see what a nightmare this would be. So America does do some good in the world. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, I feel like that's a good place to end it, but then I always ruin it by asking another question because um, this just popped into my head when you mentioned libertarians. Uh, I was thinking back to our conversation with some folks from Decrim NY. Uh, sex work organizers um, and they were talking about how you know right-wing libertarians haven't done shit to actually help the cause of decriminalization decriminalization and I also like the sweatshirt that you're wearing right now it says outlaw poverty not prostitution where's that from that's from swap behind bars sex worker organizing project oh excellent I've heard of them um and you talk in your book about different models of dealing with sex work, you know, other than the horrible one that we have right now. You talk about decriminalization. You talk about legalization. Um, and you don't really seem to take a position. But um, I know that most of these organizations are in favor of full decriminalization. So where do you do, do you have an opinion on that beyond what you had in the book or no? Yeah, I think that it's the devils are really in the details. And what I say in the book is that we need a process where communities, sex workers, others are in dialogue trying to come up with the best strategy for a particular place. 
What we don't want is a, quote, legalization regime that is incredibly restrictive and that picks a handful of legally authorized providers and then everyone else is left out of that regime and then still criminalized. That's really where the opposition to the term legalization comes in. One could imagine a legalization regime that's not particularly restrictive. Yeah. Where, because, I mean, uh, nail salons have restrictions, barbershops have restrictions, right? Their health and safety, whatever. So it might be that there is some legalization taxation regime. Uh, so I'm, let's say, agnostic about the particulars of that, and I'm very attentive to the discourse coming out of the sex work communities. And if People haven't read Revolting Prostitutes. I, I oh, yeah. can't recommend Super it good. highly enough. Uh, and so, yes, yeah, so I, I'm fully in support of Decrim New York and have, have met with some of the organizers and am working on a film, actually, working with oh. some sex workers who are part of our production team uh, called uh, Policing Our Bodies. So, yeah, I think it's a tremendous movement. I've been so excited by its emergence and... I think it's something that DSA should be actively supporting. I know some many people in it are, and I think Absolutely. we should be thinking about what that what that could look like. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and I, I'm also thinking back to an argument I had with some people the other day where they were like, well, if sex work is like any other job, then why shouldn't it be subject to regulations like any other industry? And I didn't have a complete answer for them other than the fact that um, it will really be like every other job when the cops start treating it like that. And maybe once the cops stop um, abusing, raping, coercing and extorting sex workers, um, well, we'll be in a better place to put any kind of regulations whatsoever on it. You we know? want to make sure that the workers have the same kinds of workplace protections that they would have in any other formal employment situation so that they are included in Social Security so that if they are subjected to wage theft, they can complain about it, that if it's a dangerous work environment that OSHA can get involved and say, yeah, the ceiling's falling down, you can't have people working in here. You know, So in that sense, yes, we want them to be part of the formal labor market, but we don't want to create a bunch of fake health restrictions, like you have to have a health check every six weeks or every month, which exists in some of the legalization regimes in Mexico and, and other places. So it's finding that that yeah. balance. Yeah. And like, I absolutely don't trust the state as it's currently constituted to make those kinds of laws. Like, fuck no. I, I Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Well, this has been a very enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for coming, Alex. Really, my pleasure. And uh, I highly recommend the book to everybody who's even a little bit interested in this topic. Once again, it's called The End of Policing, and it's out now on Versa Books.
He called me Capitone, smoking ultraviolet. We turn off the phone. I'm in autopilot, make that disappear. Mr. Capperfield, when we ride, he bust them tricks, I lean him pop a wheel. Watching brandy, sipping brandy. Panties on the marble floor, guess my pants is fancy. Bitches acting catty on the set. Make your man tap me on his neck or tap me on your back. Ooh, that's nasty, but I'm classy with this shit. So pop a couple zannies for me quick. Pop a couple zannies for me. Pop a couple zannies for me quick. Pop a couple zannies for me, bitch. Like all these bars, no police. All these bars, no police.